Well, brothers and sisters, we have been over these past several weeks looking at the introduction, Paul's introduction to the Romans in verses one through seven. And over the past couple of weeks in particular, we've been looking at verses five through seven. And I mentioned that there are seven marks of grace in Paul's introduction to the Romans, which I liken to fuel, a fuel that propels the gospel forward. And over the past two weeks, we've been looking at these two verses, verses five, excuse me, three verses, five, six, and seven. And we covered the first five aspects of grace, the first five of seven. We looked at the source of all grace being Jesus Christ himself, that all of God's unearned favor for those who only deserve his punishment comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. We looked at the nature of grace that Paul writes about in Romans 1 here as both saving and sending grace. Paul himself was called. He was commissioned an apostle. And he says, we have received grace. And you also have been called. You Romans and you Creeksiders, you Christians around the world have been called by his grace. We are saved that we might go. And proclaim this good news to others. And then we looked at the power of grace. That this power of grace is strong enough to overcome the hardest heart of man. Which the word likens to a rock. A rock that only the hammer of God can shatter into pieces. And we looked at the extent of grace. That this gospel goes not just to a particular ethnic group. But to every tribe. Every tongue. Every people and nation of the earth. And then we looked at the purpose of grace, or really the ultimate purpose of grace, which is for his name, for his name, for the glory and honor of God, not for our glory, because every aspect of salvation is of the Lord. Scripture is clear on that. And then last week, we looked at the sixth aspect of grace, which was the privileges of grace. And there were really two privileges that I highlighted. The first is that we are beloved of God. Beloved or loved by God. And we talked about how this love of God is his own special, unique, unchanging, everlasting, giving, sacrificial love. And he sets it upon us not because of anything in and of ourselves. We're not lovely as sinners. We're not. We're, we're, we're a mess. We're wretched. We're reprehensible. But God, because he is merciful and because he loves decided to set his love upon us unilaterally. In fact, upon a group that he calls out of the world who are a love gift from the Father to the Son. And we see that the Son reciprocates this love gift of the Father by laying down his life for these people, for us. And then we saw, secondly, the second aspect of uh, the privilege of grace is that we are called saints, called saints. In other words, holy ones, those who are set apart from our sins once and for all by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And because of this, we are able to pursue a life of holiness because we have the thrice holy God abiding inside of us. We are not like the Catholics teach, uh, striving for sainthood by some amount of good works that we do in our life or laying down our lives as martyrs. No, there are no such thing as super Christians who achieve sainthood and other Christians who don't. All Christians are called saints because it's not based on our work. It's based on the completed, perfect, finished work of Jesus Christ. Today, we move to the seventh aspect of grace, and that is the promises of grace the promises of grace. And there's really a couple of promises I want to point out. One is continuing grace. The next is peace from God. And then, Lord willing, we'll see how we do. Um, a new family. A new family. So let's start by reading Romans chapter 1, 1 through 7. I would ask all of you to please stand for the reading of the word. And this will just be Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, 
separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you committing this time and trusting, Lord, that you will impart spiritual good to your people. Father, I confess my weakness. I confess feelings of anxiety. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, use me and all of us despite my weakness. Lord, our desire is to glorify your great name, that you would be known among your people and in this world. Father, that every knee would ultimately bow to Christ. That is our prayer, Lord. Be gracious and save many for your namesake. Lord, we commit this time and we trust you and we love you because you first loved us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first point of this promise of grace is continuing grace, continuing grace. Verse 1, in verse 1, Paul says um, that he's called. He says, Paul, a bondservant, literally a slave of Jesus Christ, called an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So Paul, in his opening verse, says that he's called, he's sent. In verse 5, he says, through him, referring to Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. He says that he and the apostles also received grace. And then in verse 6, he says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, pointing to the Romans, also receiving the saving grace of the gospel. So in verse 7, when he says, grace to you, haven't they already received grace? They have. So why is he then saying grace to you? Turn, if you would, with me to Exodus 33. Exodus chapter 33. We'll come back to Romans. And in this chapter, what we have is God telling Moses to lead the people from Sinai to the promised land. He says he will send his angel before them to drive out all their enemies. But then he says this concerning and frankly sad thing. He says, but God himself would not go in their midst because they are a stiff-necked people, and that if God did go with them, he would only consume them. So the people, upon hearing this, mourn. They lament. And Moses pitches a tent outside the camp, and the Lord meets with Moses there. It says that the cloud, the pillar of cloud, descends upon this tent. So God meets with Moses, and he speaks with him there face to face, as a man does with a friend. Now look at verse 12 of chapter 33. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I might find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. In other words, Moses is saying, Lord, if I found grace in your sight, help me to find more grace. Show me your way and help me to know you. And what was God's answer? 
And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Grace requested, grace received. Hmm. Why? Because Moses had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because Moses was one of God's covenant people. And his covenant people were among those Moses were leading. So God was gracious to Moses and to them. This is the concept that we looked at a couple of weeks back when we looked at John chapter 1, when John proclaimed that Jesus is the eternal word who became flesh and dwelt among them. And what does John say? And that he was full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And then in John 1.18, he says, And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. Or literally, grace in the place of grace. Grace upon grace. What's the idea? Rolling waves of grace will continue for the child of God for his whole life. If I have found grace in your sight, Lord, help me to find more grace. Or take this illustration. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, we have the parable of the sower. And Jesus is speaking to the multitudes this parable in Matthew 13. And at the end of verse 9, Jesus says this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples come to Jesus and ask why he speaks to the crowds in parables. And look at verse 11. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has, it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So here's the principle in verse 12. Whoever has, whoever has what? Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, whoever has this ability given by God to hear and understand the word of God, to him more will be given. And conversely, to the one who doesn't have this ability, even what he has will be taken away from him. He won't endure. He won't continue hearing to the end. And so it is with grace. He who has grace, the saving grace of God, he will receive more grace. It is assured, brothers and sisters, the reserves are there for all who are in Christ to take you to the very end of this journey, which is to glory, to heaven. Let me give you one other illustration in Matthew chapter 25. Turn to chapter 25. This is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept and at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they, were, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, sometimes this these parables can be a little hard to understand, but really the key to this parable is this. The oil 
that's brought for the lamps. Look at verse 3 again. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So when the bridegroom comes at midnight, what happens? The foolish virgins find that they don't have enough oil to go out and meet the bridegroom. Right? They can't make it to the wedding. Why? Because they don't have reserves of oil. The lamps go out. This oil, loved ones, is the oil of grace, I believe. The foolish, they had a measure of it, right? They had some in their lamps. They, they went for a time. Their, their lamps were burning, but then they went out. I think that's very much like the common grace that God shows to all men. He causes his sun to shine upon the wicked and upon the righteous, doesn't he? He causes his rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. We all have this measure of common grace of oil, if you will, that burns for a time. But the foolish virgins didn't have those reserves of oil that the wise had to make it to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the Lord comes again for his church, and that's exactly what is needed to make it to the end. Grace upon grace. That's how the... the uh, Excuse me, that's how Paul can say to the Philippian church, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. All your need. He will supply all your need. He will provide the oil in your lamp so that it burns until he returns. So the first promise of grace is more grace will be provided. If you are a recipient of this special saving, sending grace that Paul and the apostles and the Roman church received, and of which he writes here, then brothers and sisters, you are assured more grace. Praise God. Throughout your whole life, you stand in a state of grace with the Lord by his own doing. So praise him. Now, the second promise is this. Grace to you and peace from God. Back to Romans 1, verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God. The second promise is peace from God. The world's idea of peace um, is not the Christian idea of peace. The world's idea of peace is really a negative view. It's the absence of something, the absence of fighting, the absence of hostilities, uh, the absence of... Uh, taking up arms. It's maybe a laying down of arms, right? We say this, that if these two people would just get along, if they would stop fighting with each other, or if these two countries would lay down their arms, sign a ceasefire agreement, or work toward a peace treaty, then they'd have peace. But brothers and sisters, that is a superficial view of peace. Why? Because it doesn't address the heart of man. One can stop fighting physically, but that doesn't mean that they won't stop fighting in their hearts. Do you remember when Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you've murdered him? That's because God looks upon the heart. And the issues that proceed in life, in our actions, what we do, comes from the heart. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus addresses this with the Pharisees. And he says, starting in verse 17, do you, not, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed, look, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So the issue is the heart of man. And the peace that the world offers isn't sufficient to address this problem of the heart, right? They only offer temporary, but ultimately ineffective solutions. Or the world might think of peace as a feeling, a subjective experience of inner calm, a, a tranquility of, of spirit, a serenity, a quietness. Again, an absence of conflict. 
with oneself, with others. And so what does the world's wisdom suggest? Well, it suggests that we should meditate to achieve inner peace by trying to empty our minds of everything that oppresses us so that we become, quote, one with ourselves, one with our environment, and, and therefore achieve peace. But the problem is they still have this accusing, guilty conscience that won't leave them alone. And so they say, only silence that voice, I'll have peace. And so some people turn to substance abuse to numb the senses. Some turn to more socially acceptable distractions, like going to the movies to forget their problems, or doing charity work, or perhaps even coming to church to feel like they're doing something good. But again, this is a peace that doesn't last, because when the circumstances change, the peace goes away. When difficulty arises and conflict comes, when sadness and loss strike, peace is gone. That is not the peace that Paul is referring to here when he says grace and peace from God. And in order for us to understand this concept, I think we need to start where the Bible starts with regard to sin. You see, the Bible teaches that ever since the fall of man, the natural man is at war with God, at war with him. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, effectively, they changed allegiance from following the Lord to following the devil. Why? Because they believed Satan's word, which was the lie, over God's word, which is the, tr which is the truth. And in so doing, they declared open war on God. They became his enemies. And God pronounced curses, you remember, on the serpent, on Eve, on Adam, on the whole earth. And he drove the man and the woman out of the garden. He placed angels called cherubim at the east gate of the garden with a flaming sword that turned every which way to prevent them from coming back into the garden and eating from the tree of life. And ever since that time, God has been causing man to return to the dust of the ground from which he was taken, death, as a result of Adam's sin. Paul's going to tell us in chapter 6 of this epistle to the Romans that the wages, what's earned from our sin, is what? Death. Death. In other words, separation. You see, death has these two facets to it. The physical death is a separation of body from soul. But the far worse separation and death is the spiritual death. It's the separation of man from God, his maker. That's why Paul says in Romans 5 chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 5 verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Friends, do you know that you were at war with God before you came to Christ? Hmm. Some people really struggle with this and they say, I don't see how I was at war with God. I mean, I didn't even know him. But Paul again says in Romans 8 verses 6 and 7, for to be carnally minded, in other words, fleshly minded, uh, naturally minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, literally hatred toward God. The natural mind hates God. And how do we know that? Because, as Paul says, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. In other words, the natural mind hates God because it is not submitted to the law of God. It's not yielded to the, the law of God nor indeed can be. Huh. Isaiah says it this way, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. So where have we gone astray? In our minds, in our thinking. We see this in our children, don't we? We tell them, now kids, don't touch those cookies until after dinner, okay? And just telling them that makes them want to what? But it's not just our kids, right? It's us too. Speed limit, 40 miles an hour. Uh, 
Remember Paul in Romans 7? But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. In other words, all the law of God does is to stir up my evil desires within me to break the law. The more the law puts a boundary around me, a fence around me, the more I just want to push through and break those boundaries and achieve, quote unquote, freedom. The problem's not the law, right? The problem is me. It's sin dwelling in me. By the way, this is what we mean when we talk about the total depravity of man. It means that every faculty, every aspect of a person's life is depraved, is fallen, is distorted and ruined because of sin. And that includes our minds. It also includes our affections. It includes our will. The whole man is involved. <clears throat> so we are at war with God. But the scriptures also teach that God has also declared open war on sinful man. John chapter 3. Jesus tells Nicodemus this. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life but what? The wrath of God abides on him. Every unbeliever has the wrath of God abiding on him. It's like a sentence of death that is hanging over his head, just waiting to be executed. And that wrath is God's fierce anger and punishment that burns like an unquenchable fire against sin. It must because he's holy. He's separate from sin. And his nature insists that he must, must punish sin. And if a man dies in that state of having the wrath of God abiding on him, he will be forever lost. That's what's called hell. To be under the torments of God forever, under his wrath. It starts now in this life. It continues forever if it's not dealt with. In Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, David tells us, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Now, people don't like to look at that or hear that sometimes. They just like to focus on the love of God. It's true. He is love, but he's also wrath against sin. You have to uphold both the justice of God, which demands punishment for sin, and the love of God, which he graciously gives to his people because he's a loving and merciful God. You say, okay, well, if God is angry, why doesn't he just wipe us all out? Well, he did once. Remember the great flood? He wiped out the entire earth except for eight souls, Noah and his family. And the promise is that he will again destroy the earth, not by water, but by fire. Second Peter chapter 3. He's going to dissolve the entire earth, the elements, and everything in the earth is going to be burned up. So why doesn't he burn us up right now? Why is it that people are sinning with impunity and it seems like God is silent? Because he's long-suffering? Because he's not willing that any of his own should perish? But that all should come to what? Repentance. He is long-suffering. He's patient. The patience of God is withholding his own hand from judging us. Because he will save his people. And he's still gathering in his people. He's not done yet. When he's done, when the last one is gathered in, judgment will begin. The final judgment. And so Paul is going to develop this idea as we go in Romans chapter 1 of this wrath of God. Really starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. And we're going to see a number of ways illustrated of how God reveals this wrath from heaven against ungodly men. But the good news, my friends, is this. The gospel, the glad tidings that we've been talking about here in Romans 1, is that God has done something to change our pitiable and condemned condition. Grace to you and peace from God. So the first point under this heading of peace from God is this. This peace originates with God. It originates with God. 
Notice, from God. He has done something to make peace with us rebels. In fact, God must be the first mover. We've offended him. He's the offended party. And he's the one who must make the first move toward reconciliation. Remember a few weeks back when we discussed the example from Luke chapter 11 of the strong man fully armed who guards his palace, keeps his goods. Turn to to Luke chapter 11. Let's just look at this together again. Luke chapter 11 in verse 21. This is Christ speaking. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So this is a picture that our Lord provides of really the devil as the strong man armed and his subjects who are under his oppression, under his dominion. And you notice he says his goods are in peace. It's interesting. That doesn't mean that they've achieved oneness with the universe and that they are tranquil in themselves. No, it actually means that they're subdued. They're in bondage to Satan. And here's the surprising part. They love it. They love it. They have no desire to change. They're kept in peace. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light, the scripture says. Because their deeds were evil. Man is comfortable with his own sin. He excuses it. He delights in it. He approves of it. And he approves of others who do the same things. He's like the prodigal son who hates his father enough to ask him for his inheritance early. Effectively saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me the money. And then he goes to a far country, far away from the father. And what does he do? He spends all that money in wasteful, riotous living, worthless things. He totally uh, depletes all the resources that the father had given him. And when he's with the pigs and he himself is starving because he has no resources and God providentially sends a famine, He's just hanging out in the muck with the pigs. And he would stay there were it not for the grace of God, causing him to wake up and come to himself, come to his senses and say, what have I done? I've sinned against heaven. I will go to my father. That's all of us before we come to our senses, before we're granted repentance to come to Christ. We're the slaves of the devil and we like it. We prefer the lies of God, excuse me, we prefer the lies of the devil to the truth of God, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. Until, verse 22, when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoils. That's a picture of Christ. He comes in and he overcomes the strong man, the devil, and he sets us free. And notice, Christ is the stronger man who acts while we are in that's that position, while we're under the dominion of Satan, while we're slaves. We're not able to do anything. Christ comes and rescues us, his power, his acting. You say, okay, it's a helpful illustration, but how does that work out practically? I mean, how does Jesus actually set us free? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So notice, God took action to reconcile us to himself, to bring us from afar, separated from God, the condition of spiritual death that we talked about, to himself. And how did God reconcile us in Christ? Verse 19. That is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. 
He did it by forgiving our sins, by not imputing trespasses. That means by not counting our sins that we had committed to us. In other words, to treat someone, though he's guilty, as though he had never sinned, as innocent. You say, how can God do that? Well, look at verse 21. For he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, that is the heart of the gospel. God would not be a just judge if he just said, I'll forgive their sins willy-nilly. I'll just forgive them. Why? Because his holiness demands that he must punish sin. So the punishment must be exacted. The question is, is it going to be on your head or is it going to be on Christ's head? This is what God did for us in Christ. And this is actually what the word reconcile means in Greek. Katalaso. It's an accounting term. It means to exchange, actually to exchange money. It was used in these times when coins were traded for other coins of the same value. So it'd be like taking, I mean, we don't use coins a lot these days. Everyone's got cards. But if you had 25 cents and you said, give me two dimes and a nickel, right? It's the same, same exchange, different currency or different, different coins. So in other words, God is exchanging the sins of all his people with what? The righteousness of Christ <laughs> at the cross. God put our sins on Jesus' account, treating him as if he had personally committed every sin that we ever committed and that we ever will commit. And instead, he gives us Jesus' righteousness on our account. He makes the exchange. He reconciles us. Listen to how Isaiah puts it. In Isaiah 53, he says, But he, referring to this Messiah to come, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. The chastisement for our peace. And Christ had to be punished in our place to secure our peace. A price had to be paid. And what was that price? His stripes. The blood. The precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing, friends, that will turn away that wrath of God that abides, that impending death sentence that looms over the heads of all who don't believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus did it. That's why we sing. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow, right? The transaction is complete. So the idea is this is an objective, historical reality, a fact of what God has done for us in Christ without our doing anything. Right? (laughs) So the first point under this promise of peace with God again is that it originates with God. It's from God. He's the actor. He's the first mover. So the next question is this. How does this peace become ours? How does it become effective for us, not just remaining some objective truth that's out there apart from me? Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. First two verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Friends, it is faith. Faith in Christ that justifies us, that declares us righteous, that makes us no longer blameworthy for our sin, that gives us right standing with God, this grace in which we stand. It's a legal declaration of something that was completed 2,000 years ago at Calvary, a one-time act that has continuing repercussions for us today. Peace with God and access to him. How? Because the wrath has been turned away in Christ. 
The veil of the temple, remember when Christ died, the veil of the temple was rented, tore in two. What did that represent? The separation, that, that veil represented the separation of the Holy of Holies from the rest of the sanctuary. And when Christ died, that veil was torn to signify we now have access to go through the veil directly to the presence of God, which was reserved for the high priest and only once a year and not without blood for a sacrifice for himself and for the sins of the people. But in Christ, praise God, we have access all the time, day and night. You can go to the throne of grace and ask for help. It's there. The reserves of grace are there for you. And God calls us to use them, call upon him. The author of the Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, that we now have boldness to enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. So when we celebrate communion every week here, as we'll do shortly, we say that Christ's body was broken for us, right? What that means is, think back to the veil. The veil was rent in two. He, through his death, made possible access to God. We have peace with God. Here's the second point. Peace from God leads to peace with God. Peace from God leads to peace with God. There is no more wrath hanging over our heads. Think about that just for a moment. The scriptures describe the wrath of God as an arrow that is drawn in a bow pointing at the sinner's head. The sinner doesn't even realize it. And if God doesn't act to save him or her, that arrow will plunge full and long through that person and and destroy them forever. That's, again, a picture of hell, a picture of eternal death. Praise God, we don't have that hanging over our heads anymore. It's been removed in Christ. He has paid it for us. We no longer have the wrath of God. God is no longer against us. He's now for us. This is the idea of peace with God. R.C., Dr. R.C. Sproul, he said it this way. This peace of God, it's not a truce. God doesn't turn his wrath back to us. He doesn't rattle his sword against us. Or threaten us ever again. When it's been paid, it's been paid. It will never return. The wrath of God is satisfied. Brothers and sisters, this true truth really is the key that unlocks all of the Christian life. When we have peace with God, our consciences are cleansed from sin. They're cleansed from, as the Hebrew, the author of the Hebrews says, dead works so that we might serve the true and living God. The guilt of sin is removed. We no longer have to suppress it or try to cover it over or try to make it go away. Distract ourselves endlessly. We now have peace with ourselves because we have peace with God. We have a clear conscience. And when we do sin, we know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We know that his, faith, his faithful promise is this, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness, right? We have peace with God, access to reserves of grace that we don't understand. Praise the Lord. This is a peace that can't be legislated. It can't be drafted into a treaty and enforced Those treaties aren't lasting. They don't work. You see nations break those treaties all the time, right? This peace of God is that which can change a man's soul from hating God to loving God and loving others, loving your neighbor. It deals with the problem of the heart that we talked about at the beginning. It must be wrought from within. And by the way, this is the only way that any society ever would have a hope of changing to become more godly. These things can't be done from the outside in with, again, legislation and 
and Congress, acts of Congress. These things must be done through the gospel of Jesus Christ, changing the hearts of individuals one person at a time. Individuals who are living for the glory of God. So that's why we pray. We pray for our government officials. We pray for all who are in authority that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives, living at peace with all men as much as is possible within us. We want their salvation. We want them to turn because we understand that destruction is imminent for all those who are outside of Christ. The wrath abides, but it can be taken away. Why would you die? Why would you reject this hope of life that we have, this rock-solid assurance that Christ has paid it all? Let's look at one more example here. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 27. Speaking of peace, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So what is this peace which Jesus says he gives to his disciples, which is unlike the peace that the world has to offer? Well, it's important to understand what's happening in this chapter in John 14 is that Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's nearing the end of his earthly ministry. And he's getting ready to leave his disciples. And Jesus, being the good shepherd that he is, cares for his sheep. He loves his disciples. He's concerned for them. He knows that when he goes to the cross, they are going to be scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And that their hearts will be filled with anxiety and fear. So I believe that we can understand this portion of Scripture in John 14 really as Jesus' last will and testament. He wants them to be comforted that although he's going away, he will send them another helper who will never leave them again. He says that in verse 16. Look at John 14, 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And that word for another, when he says, I will give you another helper, that word in the Greek means another of the same kind. So Jesus is saying, the Father is going to send another helper who is of the same kind as Jesus. And he's referring to the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Trinity, right? Of the Godhead. Co-equal with the Son, co-equal with the Father. He's of the same kind. And it's this helper who will come and who will abide forever, who will dwell in them, he says in verse 17. And he will help them in a particular way. So what is it that the helper will do for them? Look down at verse 25. These things... I've spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. See, Jesus has been speaking words of comfort while he's been present with them. But he's going away shortly. He'll say that in verse 28, and he won't be able to speak comfort to them much longer in person. And so Jesus is saying, even though I won't be able to speak comfort to you in person much longer, the Father is going to send another of the same kind, the Spirit of truth, who is going to pick up where Jesus leaves off. He's going to send the Spirit. And what's the Spirit is going to do? What is the Spirit going to do? He's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So what's he really bringing to the disciples' minds? What's he going to teach them? The words of Christ, right? The words of Christ. And look in verse 27 again now. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. So what is this peace that he leaves with them? I believe it's really two things. And maybe it's one and the same thing. His peace is his word. 
his word that will be ministered to them by the Holy Spirit who will teach them the word of Christ and bring it to their remembrance. Now, I believe that this passage, when he says um, that the Spirit will teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance, I think that primarily has application with these disciples and the apostles who will write scripture. Jesus is going away. They're not going to remember every word that Jesus spoke to them in his earthly ministry. They're going to need help, divine help to remember everything that Christ said so that when they record scripture, they record exactly what the word of God is. They exclude the things that are not the word and they only include the things that are the word so that what we have before us is the word of God. God breathed through these men who were carried along, moved by the Holy Spirit. But there's also, by extension, an application to all Christians. The Spirit teaches us. He instructs us. He brings Scripture to our remembrance, right? And the Scripture has several things to say about this connection between the Word of God and the peace of God. Isaiah 26.3 you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. He says the man whose mind is fixed on God's word is the man who knows the perfect peace of the Lord. Or take Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Notice the connection between keeping our minds on the law of God, which really is the totality of his word, and peace. So the peace of Jesus is his word, but it's also, remember, this is the last will and testament of Christ. So it's his legacy to his disciples. He's about to go to the cross, and he's about to take their punishment for them. He's about to remove that abiding wrath of God from over their heads, and he's going to put it over his head for them. And he's going to take that wrath away forever. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. The world's peace is temporary. It is fleeting. Christ's peace is lasting and concrete. Why? Because he paid the penalty so that I can live forever. That my sins might be forgiven. That's good news, friends. That's good news, and it's lasting peace. So I believe this is the legacy that Christ is leaving to them. They're worried. They're anxious. They're fearful in their hearts. And Christ says, my peace I give to you. Don't worry, little flock. I'm going to take your punishment so that you can live forever. It's the greatest legacy, will and testament, that Christ can leave his people. And it's for us. It's for all who are in Christ. Jesus's peace is not just good feelings. It's not just a set of principles to follow, to have a better life, a more tranquil life. It's the truth of what God has done for us in Christ. And we apprehend it by faith. The commentator Hendrickson said this, Peace is the great blessing which Christ, by his atoning sacrifice, bestowed upon the church, and it surpasses all understanding. Right? You hear Philippians 4, 7 there. The peace that passes all understanding. So that's why Jesus, in John 14, 27, says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And then he adds this, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Why? Because this peace from God, it passes understanding. It casts out every fear and anxiety that may come into our lives. It guards our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Loved ones, this is the antidote to fear and anxiety. It's the peace of God. It's the presence of God ministering to you by his spirit. The precious truths of the word of God. Peace is not the absence of something as the world teaches, but it's the presence of something, the presence of the Lord. <laughs> We're called to meditate, right, on the word. But it's not the world's kind of meditation. We're not emptying our minds. We're actually filling our minds, aren't we? Filling our minds with the truth of the word of God. 
It's like Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 3, 15 and 16. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. And how are we to let this peace of God rule in our hearts, Paul? Here's how. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's what the man of God, who is at peace with God, does. That characterizes his life. So grace will beget grace. And peace from God is from him and gives us peace with him and with ourselves and with our neighbor. It works from within on the promises of God by faith. What I haven't talked about is this kind of grouping. Paul says, grace to you and peace. I mean, that's his message. Grace to you and peace. And it's a familiar greeting. You see it over and over in the scriptures. In fact, he uses it, I think, 13 times in his epistles. Grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting, as I was looking at this, is the Greeks would greet each other in Paul's day by saying, Chere. Chere, which means joy, joy to you. And the Jews would greet each other with shalom, shalom, which means peace. And what Paul has done is he's combined together these two greetings from the Jews and from the Greeks into a unique Christian greeting, where Paul changes chere to charis, which is grace, and he keeps shalom. And he says, grace and peace. The Greeks and the Jews paired together in Christ, in this one new man, the body of Christ. Now, <laughs> what's interesting to me is I remember that Paul, when he speaks of the Jews and the Greeks, he always lists the Jews first, right? Like Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. Or take Romans 2, 9, and 10. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek or the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So why, Paul, are you reversing the order here? Grace and peace, Greek first, Jew second, when you always say Jew first and Greek second? Friends, is there any peace with God without the grace of God? No, right? We must have the grace of God first to know the peace of God. That's why. Grace and peace to you. So we have continuing grace. We have peace from God. And then the third and final promise here, and I'm not going to comment much on this, but promise three is a new family. He says in Romans 1 again, uh, verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, God our Father. Um, my brother, Pastor Stan, was pointing out how um, in one of our Wednesday night lessons on the Sermon on the Mount, that this idea of our Father is scarcely found in the Old Testament. Maybe uh, 10 or 18 times, I think, in the, in the entire Old Testament, whereas in the New Testament, we have it all over the place. God is our Father. And in the beginning of this epistle to the Romans, in verse 1, Paul says... It's about God's son. Actually, in verse 3, excuse me. Uh, declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness. Declared to be the son. So this gospel is about the son, who is our Lord. But here in verse 7, Paul tells us that God is our father and Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, that's one title in the Greek. When you read it, it's God our father 
and Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say and the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's one title. God, who is our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful because it shows you that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. Paul is calling him God because he is. And Jesus is still our Lord, but now we're sons of God in Christ, right? We've been placed into Christ, the Son. So we are sons of God and we have a new relationship with God as our Father because we are sons. We have been born again into the family of God as sons, a work of God. We've been born from above. The Spirit of God has come down and regenerated our hearts. And we're in the family of God, how? By adoption. God has adopted us into his family. He's made us sons. That's not to say anything against daughters, but sons in scripture are there because it refers to inheritance. Sons are those who inherit in the family. So he's saying, you're all sons of God through Christ, even though you're sons and daughters, but you're all inheritors. You're all one in Christ. And we can call God our father. We have a tender, new relationship with him. He's no longer our judge. He's no longer the one who has the arrow pointed at our heads. He's a tender father who bids us to come. And he wants us to be as little children who come to him totally dependent on him, who trust in him, who cry out to him. And he promises to deliver us and that we will glorify him in doing that. We'll close with this. Listen to Matthew Henry's commentary just on this idea of peace and the fatherhood of God. He says this, See here how ready he is to own us in him. He is my beloved son, not only with whom, but in whom I am well pleased. He is pleased with all that are in him and are united to him by faith. Hitherto, God has been displeased with the children of men, but now... His anger is turned away, and he has made us accepted in the beloved, which is Ephesians 1.6. Let all the world take notice that this is the peacemaker, the daysman, who has laid his hand upon us both, and that there is no coming to God as a father, but by him as mediator. Out of Christ and out of Christ alone, God is a consuming fire, but... In Christ, he's a reconciled father. A reconciled father. Loved ones, we can call him father because he's made peace with us. He's brought us into his family. He's given us every privilege in Christ, in the heavenlies. He's made us full inheritors of eternal life. Inheritors of himself. The world's father is the devil. And this morning, if you are outside of Christ, hmm, you have every reason to be terrified, every reason to be concerned because you're still under his wrath, still under his condemnation, and frankly, headed to eternal destruction. But you don't have to remain in that condition. Call upon the Lord in the day that he may be found. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear the word of the Lord, don't be like the Israelites who in the wilderness hardened their hearts against the Lord. And God laid their bodies waste in the wilderness. They didn't make it to the promised land. They did not enter the, the rest, the promise of rest that God had for them. Why? Because they didn't believe. Be believing. Hear the word of the Lord and ask him for help. And he will answer that prayer. Let's pray. Father, Thank you so much for these privileges that we enjoy in Christ. These promises of grace that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Your reserves of grace will carry us, will continue to cause those wicks on, the, on our lamps to burn as grace is, is used. But Lord, we need not fear, for you will continue to give us your grace not for ourselves, not for our glory, but for yours, that we might look to Christ, look to God, and acknowledge that you are our Savior. This is your work of redemption, Lord. We praise you that you've turned away your wrath, that you have found a way to be just and the justifier 
by providing your son, Jesus Christ, that our punishment might be punished in him and that his righteousness might be given to us and our sins forgiven forever. Peace with God. Lord, may this truth permeate our minds, permeate our souls as we go through this world, this valley of the shadow of death, where death itself is no longer a threat, but the shadow is there. Lord, we need not fear because you are with us in the valley. You, like David said, set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Father, while we are in distress, while we are in straits, difficulty, tension, you give us peace. Your peace which passes understanding. A peace that we can't explain, but that we know and understand experientially because of your Holy Spirit which lives in us, who dwells in us, who teaches us and who brings the word of God to our remembrance, who gives us peace as we meditate on, as we think on these things. Lord, bless your people. Help us to no longer live according to the flesh, but to daily set our minds on things above where Christ is, to walk according to the Spirit. Thank you for your wonderful and precious promises, which are ours in Christ. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.